Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. The first in the nation primary in the larger Democratic race for president now has its front runner with Senator Bernie Sanders joining the fray. His revolution took the political establishment by surprise in 2016, but he ultimately fell short. But Sanders told us last week 2020 will be different. One thing that hasn't changed, though, is the importance of winning in New Hampshire. Thank you, New Hampshire. It was one of the biggest victories in first in the nation primary history. In 2016, Bernie Sanders blew out Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire. News 9 spoke with the Vermont senator as he launched his 2020 campaign Tuesday, and he says once again, the Granite State is crucial to his path to the White House. Well, it goes without saying that New Hampshire is enormously important, and I want to thank the people of New Hampshire, uh, who in 2016 not only gave us a very strong victory, but showed the American people that the ideas that we were fighting for, and that is... Medicare for all, making sure that health care is a right, not a privilege, raising the minimum wage uh, to $15 an hour, making sure that all of our kids have the opportunity to go to college, to rebuild our infrastructure. All of those ideas that I brought to New Hampshire three years ago, they were at that point considered radical and extreme. Well, the people in New Hampshire said differently, and today that's what the American people are saying. These are not radical ideas. These are not extreme ideas. These are ideas that we should be implementing. Those ideas are now being espoused by a number of different candidates uh, here in New Hampshire. How different is this race in your eyes in terms of facing off instead of one or two opponents, or one-on-one as it was by the time the primary came around? Now you could be facing dozens. Well, obviously, uh, a race which has 10 or 15 people is a very different race than has one. Uh, I hope that the people of New Hampshire will take a look at my experience, uh, will take a look at how long. Uh, I have been fighting uh, for these ideas. These are not new ideas for me. I've been fighting for health care as a right uh, for my whole political career. Uh, I'm proud that uh, fighting for decent wages for American workers, we were successful uh, this year in getting Amazon uh, to raise their minimum wage uh, to $15 an hour, similar uh, with Disney. And that's what we have to do nationally. So we've been at this. Uh, for quite a while. I would say the other point is that, to me, what is terribly important about this campaign uh, is that we defeat uh, Donald Trump, who, to my mind, is a pathological liar. Uh, He is a racist. He is a sexist. He is a homophobe. He is a xenophobe. He is, uniquely in our lifetimes, the only president who has tried to divide the American people up rather than uh, bring them together. And, Adam, to me, what this campaign is about, what we are trying to do, is to bring people together in a way that will be, I think, unprecedented in a presidential campaign. We sent out an email today calling for one million people in Vermont, in New Hampshire, all over this country, to come together to not only help us win the Democratic nomination, uh, not only help us win the general election, but help us take on the incredibly powerful special interests, the drug companies who rip us off every day, the insurance companies, the fossil fuel industry, Wall Street, all of the powerful forces 
will have so much influence over our economic and political life. We've got to start standing up to them and create an economy and a government that works for all of us, not just wealthy campaign contributors. And last question for you here, Senator. I'm not sure if you're aware, the Ballot Law Commission here in New Hampshire has already been moving forward with a, a, a means of, of avoiding the situation that happened last time with your party affiliation and having to struggle with that at all. But are you going to take any demonstrable steps to rejoin the Democratic Party uh, in the coming months? Have I taken demonstrable steps? I've been running all over this country uh, to elect Democrats to the U.S. House, to the U.S. Senate, uh, as governors. Uh, I have raised millions of dollars of the Democratic uh, candidates. I'm proud that here in the state of Vermont, I'm being supported by my colleague, Senator Leahy, the United States Democratic Senator, uh, Congressman Peter Welch, our only congressman. So uh, I think I've paid my dues, uh, and I have shown the world uh, that, you know, I am an active member of the Democratic leadership in the U- U.S. Senate. But I would also say this, Adam that all across this country, and I know in New Hampshire, you've got a lot of independents in New Hampshire, that there is there are a lot of people who are concerned about both political parties, and they become either independents or not connected to Democrats or Republicans. It is important that we reach out to those people who are often young people, by the way, often people of color, uh, and to tell them that we have a Democratic Party now that is prepared to stand up uh, for working people. So I think we can play a very positive role uh, in that area as well. Okay, Senator Sanders, we appreciate your time. I hope to see you here soon. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Joining us now to unpack the Sanders announcement, my colleague and the Dean of the New Hampshire Political Press Corps, John DeStaso. Morning, Adam. How are you? Thanks for being here, John. So let's talk some pros and cons here. First off, what does Senator Sanders have going in his favor as he gets into this race? Well, in addition to the obvious of name recognition and being a neighbor and uh, having won the 2016 New Hampshire primary, he also has a core group of people who are, uh, from what I understand, committed right off, right off the beginning of this campaign. Uh, their challenge is going to be to kind of reach out to that, uh, to that group that may have not been totally excited about Sanders in 2016, but were just not about to vote for Hillary Clinton. But th- the main advantage is that people know Bernie Sanders. People know what he stands for. De- Democrats uh, view him uh, as sort of a kind of the, the vanguard for some of the issues that the entire field is, is discussing now. So that that's a plus for him, including that 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 group that he the has. Core, yeah. yeah. They always say you don't want to fight the last war. And in 2016 and 2015, the, the system is rigged, worked really well against Hillary Clinton. Do you think that'll have the same kind of sticking power on this diverse and younger field of Democratic candidates? No, I don't know that Bernie Sanders is going to have any ground to, to say the system is rigged this time. Because as a result of that uh, claim and admissions, uh, if you remember, in 2016, by officials of the DNC and emails that went out showing that the, the Democratic National Committee was sort of in the pocket of Hillary Clinton, there was an entire process beginning with a, uni- a unity commission, which came up with uh, changes to the rules. And I'm not going to belabor those, but but the big one was uh, stripping the power of, of the superdelegates to the party elite. Plus, there's no, uh, perhaps with the exception of Joe Biden, there's not really anyone that that elite is going to be gravitating to with this very diverse field. 
the regional candidate issue. We've always seen in New Hampshire the neighboring state candidates have done well, whether it's Vermont, Massachusetts, or Maine. Do you think that dynamic has changed at all over the years, particularly with social media? Say if you're a voter in Boscoway, it's possible through Twitter and Facebook mm -hmm. to follow Cory Booker or Kamala Harris and have a closer relationship mm -hmm. to them than, say, your senator from Vermont. Is that an issue? Sure. Well, I think it certainly helps all those uh, candidates that are not from New England. Now we'll see. This time we have, of course, Bernie Sanders and, and we have Elizabeth Warren who's on Friday spoke to a thousand uh, Democrats at the uh, Democratic Party's 100 Club dinner. Neighbors, people who have uh, helped the, the party, that would be Warren. Bernie has kind of gone his own way, Bernie Sanders. Uh, I still think there is something to be said about familiarity in terms of uh, having seen someone before and knowing they're a neighbor. But uh, from what I, as, as you and I both know, this the people who are paying attention right now, uh, most of them are just open to anyone and everyone, and we may see less of a, of a regional impact this time. The pressure is on those two to win the New Hampshire primary, especially on Bernie Sanders. Yeah, and especially, too, the question of age will be a big one. He'll be 78. Uh, that's older than Ronald Reagan was when he left the White House, so something to pay attention to. But, John, okay. thanks for your time. Absolutely. And we'll see you back here soon. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it, just two taps brings you back in the know. We are in the midst of a very busy February, and we are joined today by U.S. Senator and presidential candidate Kamala Harris. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So it's safe to say that your visit here is one of the most highly anticipated by Democrats in a long time, mm. uh, and your favorability ratings are very high here. So are you comfortable in New Hampshire with the title of frontrunner? No. I, no, not at all. I, um, I l am used to being the underdog. I like being the <laughs> underdog. Um, I just think that in these races, you can take nothing for granted and you have to earn everything that you get. And so I'm prepared to do that. And, and I'm really looking forward to spending a lot of time in New Hampshire and doing just that. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen much of you in the previous two years. Uh, mm -hmm. Why was that? Uh, people, uh, some people, the narrative is out there, I guess, that S Senator Harris is focusing elsewhere. No, no, not at all. I mean, I just announced three weeks ago, and I'm here, um, and I will be back, and I will be back a lot. And I intend to compete um, in this great state. I intend to spend as much time as possible talking with the residents and talking with voters and listening, frankly, more than I talk, especially in the beginning, um, because I, f I feel very strongly that if this process has merit, it will not only be the obvious goal of winning, but it will be that at the end of the process that we are relevant. And I strongly believe the only way that I can be relevant in the lives of people other than myself is if I listen to their needs and, um, and, and, and take their lead around what the priorities for the country should be. I mentioned your favorability ratings here before. This is a poll coming out of St. Anne's Home College. Uh, you have the highest of any Democrat in the race. Mm -hmm. The only two higher than you are two who are not in the race right now, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. Uh, we see, you know, parallel to the Me Too movement, uh, time's up. Mm -hmm. Do you think time's up applies to this presidential race in terms of the baby boomer folks mm -hmm. who are a little older there? Is it time for a new generation in the Democratic Party, new faces to come to power? I don't think of it as a function of age as chronological age. I think of it more, again, um, as relevancy. 
are, I think that voters are going to make decisions about who they elect based on whether we are in touch with their needs. And that's going to be a function of having listened to them. It's going to be a function of spending time with them. But ultimately, I think what everyone wants is to know that people in a position of leadership speak truth, that we are focused on real kitchen table issues, and that we have smart ideas and are prepared to work hard to improve the lives of, of American families. Um, when I look at where we are now, I think that there is so much that people want in our country about leaders that speak truth and also fight for justice. I think there's so much about the American dream and American values that are under attack. And folks want to know that um, you're prepared to fight and fight for the best of who we are. One more question on the politics side yeah. here before we get into some of the policy stuff, but does it bother you at all? You come from a very diverse state that Iowa and New Hampshire don't reflect the kind of diversity that the country has. I think that it's a, it's a matter of how you define diversity. Um, because certainly among the diversity it, 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 and of who we are as a country, as a nation, um, there is certainly d the diversity that, that, that is about race and ethnicity and age and gender. Um, but there is also the diversity of, of needs in terms of the need that a, a, a single parent might have to get through the work week, the need of a family who's making less than $100,000 and what they need um, and what they're not getting in this country, the needs of students. This is a big issue in New Hampshire. Um, there is a diversity of needs and that exists in this state as it does everywhere around the country and I think that it's really critically important that we understand no population is a monolith and we cannot engage in superficial analysis of who people are based on their skin color or their age or their ethnicity. Um, it's a mistake to do that across the board. Uh, you were involved in law enforcement for a long time. You just passed uh, this uh, anti-lynching legislation yes, that would yes. make lynching a federal hate crime. Yes. Uh, and then uh, in the parallel situation with Jesse Smollett in, in Chicago. Uh -huh. Are you angry that it looks like now that he may have fabricated this and, and created a situation in which a lot of people came to his defense in a, in a way that now appears to be unwarranted? Well, I think the facts are still kind of rolling themselves out, so I don't actually know what happened. Um, but I will say that I'm very proud that finally uh, the United States Congress and in the United States Senate, after 200 years, passed legislation that acknowledges that lynching is a crime and should be punishable as such. As a career prosecutor, I've personally prosecuted a variety of violent crimes, including homicides. Lynching is part of a real dark stain on America's history. Um, it involved people being forcibly taken from their homes. It involved people being hung, dragged, men being castrated while crowds would applaud. Extreme acts of violence that never went with any kind of arrest, most of them, with any kind of arrest or prosecution or sentencing or punishment. And um, I'm very proud that, that the unanimous United States Senate, again, for all of our diversity, <laughs> um, it was a bipartisan, um, unanimous agreement that finally our country needs to recognize um, part of its history that we don't like to remember but must, and that we've done something about it. Yeah, some of those pictures are terrifying uh, just to see what had happened in our past. Yeah, sure. but, but also, listen, there, we have a case as recently as 2011 that was a lynching case in our country. So it's part of our past, but it's also part of our present. You know, we've had people at the highest levels of government engaged in, in blackface 
and, 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 and this kind of behavior. There's so much of our history that we have not fully come to, 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 to reconcile that causes people to either be ignorant about what happened or overlook the significance of it. And so we have to keep these conversations alive. People always talk about the conversation and people thought that the, the Obama presidency would be this restorative moment in some way, but how do you move that ball forward of racial reconciliation uh, mm -hmm. when it seems to be going in the wrong direction right now? Well, there's no question that we right now in our country have very powerful voices that are trying to sow hate and division among us. And I, I say that it is not reflective of who we really are. It's not reflective of the nature of who we are. I strongly believe that we as Americans have so much more in common than what separates us. And it is with that knowledge in our hearts and in our minds and in our souls that we have to lead and we have to move forward. Um, the issue of race in America is still an issue that we must deal with and, and deal with the uncomfortable truths. Racism is real in America. Anti-Semitism is real. Look at the Tree of Life Synagogue. Look at what happened in Charlottesville. Look at what we are dealing with in a country still in terms of homophobia, transphobia. These are issues that we must talk about, uncomfortable though it may make us, so that we can deal with it and combat them. And, um, and I think that we all know that it's still very much an issue in our country. As a U.S. Senator, what are you going to do if the president does move forward using, say, Department of Defense funds to start building more of a wall on the southern border? Well, first of all, let me say that I believe that this is a crisis of the president's own making to fulfill um, his quest to, to build a vanity project called the wall. Um, this is irresponsible, it's the height of irresponsibility for the commander in chief to suggest that we have to build a wall across our southern border because there are terrorists who are trying to, to invade the country. It couldn't be farther from the truth. I am a prosecutor, I have spent time at those borders, I've spent time looking at ports of entry, I have spent time combating transnational criminal organizations. Most of the drugs trafficked into the United States come in through the ports of entry. So if you want to put resources into anything, put them into the ports of entry. We don't need to build a wall. This is a crisis of his own making. And by definition, just plain speak, basic English language definition, it is not an emergency. What's going to end up happening is that he will end up, without any question, if he, if he proceeds, we're going to be looking at a situation where, in particular, homeowners and landowners in places like New Mexico and, and, and Texas are probably going to look at government taking their land. We're looking at military resources being focused, again, on the president's vanity project instead of focused on real national security issues. And listen, I support a, a, a strong border in terms of having border safety and security. But this is a whole other thing, and it really is um, about a campaign promise and a, and a vanity project, and it's irresponsible. As I'm sure you're aware, New Hampshire has a terrible opioid crisis here. Yes. How, how do you stop those drugs from coming across? So the opioid crisis I've um, worked a lot on, and I, and I applaud your senators, um, both Jean Shaheen and Maggie Hassan, who have been leaders in our caucus and in the United States Senate. So let's deal with it on a number of levels. One, um, we cannot overlook the responsibility of the pharmaceutical companies who have allowed these drugs to, be f to just flood into 
are states like New Hampshire, causing irreparable damage. Let's look at the fact that this is a public health crisis. Let's look at the fact that we need to have treatment on demand. I'm a proponent, I'm actually advocating that going forward we have treatment on demand, that we have mental health services on demand, meaning people can walk in and get it. Like, they'd go, like you could go into an emergency room. Um, we need to also create incentives for more mental health and substance abuse treatment providers to be in remote areas and in, in our, it, basically in our rural areas where there is not a dearth of mental health professionals there to actually treat the needs of the community. I'll also say that on the opioid crisis, something we're not talking enough about is the impact on seniors. And New Hampshire, of course, has a very large senior population. Um, and it impacts seniors in two ways. One are seniors who are going through medical health issues um, that, that result in pain and then being prescribed opioids to treat the pain and then they become addicted, right, without meaningful intervention or monitoring. And the second is seniors who are taking care of their grandchildren and in some cases their great-grandchildren because the parent of those children is an opioid, um, has an opioid addiction. And so there's a lot of work that has to happen, but in particular there has to be a federal um, priority around putting the resources into states and into communities, both around the providers of care, but also around taking seriously the, the responsibility of, of pharmaceutical companies for their misuse of, of the, the um, power that they have in terms of their marketing. Um, there's a lot of uh, blame to be placed there. Senator Harris, we thank you so much for your time. Lots of questions. <laughs> we'll get you. to those in another day. I look forward to lots more conversations. Thank, <laughs> thank you. you so much. Do you know Gomer's gollies? Golly! 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 Sergeant, I just can't get over it. Get to know Gomer's gollies on Gomer Pile. Sponsored by Heritage Plumbing, Heating, Cooling, Electric. The leap from Congress to the White House is not one that is often made in our country's history, but in this cycle, several representatives are either running or considering presidential campaigns. One of those in consideration mode is Congressman Tim Ryan of Ohio, who joins us this morning. Congressman, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So 2020 will provide a lot of options for Democrats. If you decide to get into this race, what would you bring to the table? Uh, a focus on working class. You know, I, I grew up in Northeast Ohio and just outside of Youngstown. We've seen the 30-year train wreck of what ha what's happened in the economy, what's happened to middle-class families, middle-class people, lack of opportunity. Uh, I grew up there. I know that. I know that situation. I know the people there. I know the families there. We just lost a General Motors plant. Those are my friends. Those are my family members, and I would bring that perspective uh, to the table. Such a diverse field, women, minorities. How would you stand out if you get in? Well, figuring out how to get this country focused back on working class people, white, black, brown, gay, straight, people who go to work every single day, take a shower after work, maybe not just before work, and work hard and play by the rules, but have not been able to get ahead. That, that, if I would run, that would be my focus. How do we get workers cut in on the deal? They have not been cut in on the deal. They've had flat wages for 30 years. They still struggle with all of these issues. 
the responsibility, I think, of the President of the United States is how do you get workers cut in on this? Mm. Speaking of deals, where do you stand on the Green New Deal? You've got a lot of new colleagues in Congress who are, are uh, younger, a bit more left-leaning. Are you standing with them on this Green New Deal? I think the, the value statement that that uh, document presented is very valuable and very bold. Um, I don't agree with everything in there, but I will say we're now having a conversation about it. I think a couple things. I don't think we can get to a green economy, carbon neutral economy, without having an, an honest conversation about nuclear energy. Mm. Both what we have now, microgrids to come. I also think we've got to talk about how business is going to be a part of this. There's no way we're going to be able to green the economy, we're going to be able to get rid of carbon, reverse climate change, without having business at the table. We need the magic of the free enterprise system, the innovation that comes with the free enterprise system, that's got to be a big part of this. Is there a distrust of something like the Green New Deal in middle America, the Rust Belt, <laughs> if you will, that, that has paid such a price uh, as the economy has transformed and, and with the focus on environmental regulation and climate change? Do you feel like your constituents would be with you if you were backing this? I think we've got to talk about it differently. I mean, we can talk about it in the context of climate change, but we've got to talk about it in the sense of manufacturing jobs. What does this mean for the economy? What does this mean uh, for the energy industries? And, and talk to people about how this means jobs. This means work. Wind's growing at 25-30% a year. Solar's growing at 25-30% a year. That's opportunity. The key is going to be how do you get private investment, venture capital money that is primarily focused on the coasts, California, uh, New York, Massachusetts has 80% of venture capital. If we're going to green the economy, we need that venture capital going to places like New Hampshire, Ohio, Iowa, the Deep South. We've got to figure out how to get the private industry and that private uh, profit motive working. And then again, make sure the workers are cut in on that deal. What's your plan on health care? I've been on the uh, single payer uh, bill since 2007. That is an aspirational uh, piece of legislation. We've got to figure out how to get universal coverage. And I quite frankly don't think we can have an honest conversation about health care until we have a conversation about health and we have a conversation about food and we have a conversation about agriculture. We, we are, are not do we have half the country now has either diabetes or pre-diabetes. That sinks our health care system. So we've got to find a focus on prevention. We've got to find a focus on making sure there's access to fresh and healthy foods. We've got to have a conversation about what our kids are eating in our schools and how all of that food, the, the food issue, relates to our own health and wellness and drives up health care costs. And again, we've got to have the farmers at the table when we have that broader conversation. Trade policy is a big part of the discussion in your part of the country. What's your perspective on President Trump's tariffs? Uh, should the next president be um, enhancing or using those to a, a similar effect as he is? Or would you go back to a free trade? I support the president's initiative with regard to China. They have been cheating for years. I've watched them my entire political career dump steel tubing in the United States to the point where their final product coming to the United States was the same cost as a steel producer in Youngstown's raw material costs. That's, that's how much they cheat. So I'm for making sure we try to discipline the Chinese, we level the playing field, but the president is not 
providing any kind of stability and saying this is how we need to do it. He tweets one day one thing, next day it's another thing. And here's the big part. China's coming at us. This is a reality that we have got to talk about in this next presidential election. They have a whole of government initiative. They're building uh, infrastructure all the way to Europe. I just saw a map a railroad in China that starts in northeast China and makes its way to Rotterdam and Prague. Gas lines, sewer lines, they're building islands in the South China Sea, signing long-term contracts in Africa for raw materials. They're coming after us. So yeah, we're going to put tariffs on a small piece of the economy. What's what strategy is that part of? Where's the national strategy here in the United States? China has a 50 and 100 year plan. We live in a 24 hour news cycle with this president. And if we keep going down the road we're going now, we're gonna continue to fall behind. You speak about this president and Democrats are looking for somebody to challenge him. But I'm curious to hear your perspective on executive power. Uh, you attended Franklin Pierce Law School, now UNH Law. Did, yeah. As a lawyer, do you think that the next president should be looking to step back a little bit, perhaps, from the scope of the presidency? Has it become too powerful? You know, I say this as a congressman, <laughs> somebody who's been in the House of Representatives for a long time. I think the imperial presidency uh, has got to get unwound. I mean, it just is too much of a concentration of, of power. The president has inherently a lot of power, but we don't have authorizations for the use of military force, which I think we need. Uh, we see what the president is doing now with the national emergency with regard to uh, a border wall. It's, he, he is uh, assuming too much power, and the Congress has allowed each president to do that, and I think that the Congress needs to reestablish itself as the governing body of the country. Well, say if it's you in the White House, what is an example of a specific power or, or uh, an executive order or something you'd take a step back from? I think the the war powers. Yeah. I mean, I you know, war needs to be supported, endorsed, funded by the Congress of the United States. The people, the body that's closest to the people needs to say, we've got to go to war. And the president needs to go to Congress and get that permission. Democrats want to know, when they find a candidate in 2020, how would they take on President Donald Trump? How would you run against him if you run? Well, I think you tell the truth. Uh, first and foremost, you go spend time with, with people in communities like the ones I represent in Michigan and Wisconsin, these, these states that we've got to win. We've got to rebuild that blue wall. But I think you talk about what the president promised and what he didn't deliver on. I think you talk about how the president has divided this country. A divided country is a weak country, and a divided country can't win the future. We can't beat China. You know who wants us divided? Vladimir Putin. And they, they push out social media. It's part of their military strategy to divide us. And I would just say this president has divided us, and it's getting us nowhere. Workers aren't getting ahead. Families aren't getting ahead. We're losing our competition to China. Uh, and he needs to answer for that. And I think you can use all of the words. He said China, Mexico was going to pay for the wall. He said he was going to raise taxes on the top bracket. All of these things he went back on. He said we were going to have a one and a half to two trillion dollar infrastructure bill. Still waiting for that. We're two years in. What's your timeline for deciding whether or not you're in for 2020? You know, I'm not in any real hurry. I would say the next, you know, month or two. I, I, I just. I don't, I, this is so early. I mean, I, someone was just telling me here in the last couple of days, Bill Clinton announced in October, and here we are in February. So uh, I'm going to continue to look at it and, you know, make a decision relatively soon. But, you know, I don't feel any 
real urgency to have to do it. All right. Well, Congressman Ryan, yeah. we thank you for your time. Thank you. Hope to see you back here. Yes, sir. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.